0: It's Monday, November 14th, 2022, and you're listening to St. Sinners and Salvageables, a Hoover Institution podcast examining America's democratic process and the many challenges inherent in staging elections in these partisan times. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm taking over hosting duties today for my friend and colleague, Ben Ginsberg, so that we can get Ben's insights into how matters played out on election night and continue to play out nearly a week after the election in some parts of the country. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, then a few things you should know about Ben Ginsberg. Ben is the Hoover Institution's Volcker Distinguished Visiting Fellow and a nationally known political law advocate. Ben's past clientele reads like a who's who of American elections. That includes four of the past six Republican presidential nominees. Here at Hoover, Ben's involved in several projects involving in election integrity. For the past couple of months, he's been the voice of this podcast, engaging in very thoughtful conversations with election practitioners about the sturdiness of American brand democracy and how officials were girding for this year's vote. Ben, I hope you've caught up on your sleep from last week, and thanks for letting me do the driving today. A bit, and it's always happy to have you in the
1: captain's chair, Bill.
0: So, Ben, one thing I didn't mention in your uh, vast resume is uh, that you also, in addition to uh, being a distinguished legal uh, authority, you also are a professor. You have uh, taught at uh, Stafford's Law School. You're an Agile Professor at Georgetown University's Law Center. Professor Ginsburg.
1: I'm a teacher. You you guys guarded that professor title pretty
0: zealously. And... uh... I'm always thrilled to be a visitor and Stan. Okay, we're calling you a professor though in this podcast, my friend. <laughs> and I want you i want you to grade what happened last week in terms of election integrity. Uh, give me an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F. Uh, don't wimp out and give me a pass fail. Give me give me a grade for what happened. No, this is an A for what happened. I mean, we've been talking
1: for the last 10 weeks about all the challenges our election administration was going to face. Uh, and as things turned out, um, the, things actually did really well election officials ran an operation where they handled the massive pre-election record requests. There were no challenges to speak up to the voter registration rolls. There were only isolated disruptions in polling places, either on election day or in the early voting. There were no reports of unduly long lines. um, Despite the a lot of publicity about the number of poll watchers in the polling place from the Republican Party. There, in fact, has been no evidence presented of fraud or irregularities. And that, of course, plays to the veracity of the 2020 charges of a fraudulent um, election. Uh, And, you know, we'll sort of see what happens in the post-election certification process. Um, But with the exception of Arizona and perhaps Nevada, Bill, it really looks like a, um, an awfully clean and professional election. So real hat tip to the election administrators.
0: You uh, ran a uh, conference at Hoover this uh, past summer uh, that brought in really kind of a who's who of election officials around the country. I sat in and watched it and just incredibly impressed by the turnout there. Two of the people who are in that room, Ben, um, I saw on TV on Tuesday night. One of them had a good night, and that is uh, your friend Brad Raffensperger. Uh, For those who don't know Mr. Raffensperger, he is the Georgia Secretary of State uh, who had a very difficult 2020. He was under all kinds of pressure from Donald Trump to uh, somehow reverse the the outcome in Georgia. Uh, Mr. Raffensberger was on the ballot, Ben. He got reelected rather easily, 53% of the vote. And his state worked out pretty well. It worked out so well that Stacey Abrams actually conceded this time around. So <laughs> I think he had a good night, Ben. Somebody who did not have a good day was your friend Stephen Richer. He is the Maricopa County recorder uh, who during the middle of the day had to step out in front of the cameras and explain why Twenty five percent, I think, of the of the machines in Maricopa were temporarily down. In other words, it was just a very kind of bad look and feel for an elections official.
1: Yeah. um, And Bill Gates, who is the uh, supervisor on the board of supervisors of Maricopa County, was also at that conference. You know, they went through some problems uh, and it's taken them a long time to count. But to their credit, they dealt with the problems and really. Resolve them in the long run. Um, the problem was one of printers in the ink not being sufficient to record the ballots. Right. So that is an administrative problem that frankly they dealt with. They scooped up um, the ballots. Everyone's vote was, was ultimately counted uh, in the central counting place that actually did have sufficient ink. And so uh, I, I think no one has ever claimed that our elections would be perfect. This was an example of election administrator doing what they should do, showing grace under pressure and uh, and resolving the the problem. We'll talk a little bit later about the sort of uh, inherent problems with the lateness of the count yes. in Maricopa County. But that's all subject to state law. And while they bear the burden, it's not it's not they don't write the state law.
0: Yeah, I also want to get into some of the legality of Maricopa County, Ben, because there was a uh, request for uh, a judge to extend voting hours and the judge refused. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. But first, uh, somebody else who had a bad day, Ben, uh, were election deniers. And I want to uh, do a special group of election deniers here. These were people running for rather high profile statewide races, Ben. Uh, let's start with Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, the Republican gubernatorial nominee. Ben, last I checked, he got about 42% of the vote. He lost by about 735,000 votes. He got crushed. Uh, Let's go to Wisconsin, Ben. Tim Michaels, the Republican nominee there. Last I checked, about 47.8%, losing by about 90,000 votes. Uh, Nevada Secretary of State, Ben. Jim Marchant, 46.7%, trailing by about 22,000 votes out of about a million ballots cast. Uh, Arizona. The Secretary of State's rates, Mark Fincham, about 47.2%. The last I checked, Ben, he's trailing by 126,000 votes. Uh, And then the uh, one that uh, uh, still is not over yet, and uh, two things about this, uh, listeners, uh, Ben and I are are doing this podcast early on on Monday the 11th. The vote count keeps changing in Arizona and other states, so these percentages may be different by the time you look them up. But the last I checked, Ben Carry Lake was at about forty-nine point two percent, losing by thirty-four thousand votes. She's going down too. What do these people all have in common, Ben? They won their primaries, but they lost the general election. What does this say about election denial as a as a campaign theme?
1: What it says is that in the marketplace of ideas, election denial did not have a winning product. People did not buy. Election denial in the general election. It was successful in the primaries, and so you do have some secretaries of state uh, who are election deniers who will actually uh, be in uh, be in office. Diego Morales in uh, in Indiana, for example, and in um, Wyoming and a couple other states, you are going to have election deniers who won. Non-competitive general election. So the Republican Party has got to come to grips with the fact that election denial did work as a primary strategy this time, um, but did not work in the general election.
0: Yeah, I think there are two things here, Ben. One is, um, it's a simple strategy that you win a primary, you then have to grow your vote in the general election. In other words, you have to move beyond your base, and you have to pick up independent voters. These numbers from across the country in very different states, Pennsylvania and uh, Arizona, very different, for example, in terms of electorates. This would suggest to me that independents were turned off by the idea of election denial, Ben. But this also would take us to the um, looming presence of one Donald J. Trump in this election. Uh, If you talk to pollsters, our buddy Doug Rivers here at hoover for example uh trump has been disorienting in terms of polling uh, ever since he got into the race in 2015 let's see he was on the ballot in 2016 it was an anti-trump vote in 2018 he's back on the ballot in 2020 and then he is a looming presence in 2022 so he is you know he he is kind of you know churning the waters if you will so there's a problem that way but second it's trump just getting personally involved in terms of elections All ben here's what trump said um as Arizona was going down, he went to his uh, social media, Truth Social. He's not on Twitter, as you know. He does he does his posting on Truth Social. And here's what he said about Maricopa County, Ben. Quote, <clears throat> people were forced to wait hours, then got exhausted or had other things to do and left the voting lines by the thousands. He then went on, quote, this is a scam and voter fraud no different than stuffing ballot boxes. They stole the election from uh, you know, Masters, do election over again. Yeah, what was interesting
1: is he kept saying it and apparently nobody listened. He sent out a tweet on Election Day or a truth social on Election Day telling people to show up in Detroit because of some perceived outrage. Nobody came. Tried to start a protest on Election Day in Maricopa. Nobody came. So um, in a way, uh, he's still yelling as loudly, but it doesn't appear as people are interested uh, in that. And what was significant, as you pointed out, were the traditional concession speeches from many uh, Republican candidates, including election deniers. So that that movement has got some problems going forward. Um, Bill, I think it is important to, to point out that most of the election deniers, people who got through the primaries and uncontested elections, actually won. So according to a study by, uh, The Washington Post that really looked at all election deniers for federal and uh, statewide offices, 173 of roughly 300 candidates who were election deniers did win. But and this is the significant part, not in the battleground state. So that'll put a little bit of a wrench, uh, I think, in uh, the plan by some allies and big donors of Donald Trump to want um, to take over the election apparatus in critical states for 2024 and to propound the notion of fraudulent election.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, but you know, this is a quality versus quantity argument at the end of the day. Yeah. Trump went out and said, look my my beautiful record was 250 wins and 19 losses or something like that. Well, guess what? In every race that mattered you lost. Yes.
1: In every in every presidential battleground state for 2024 election denier candidates. that lost. So you, can, Very so you can
0: pad the stats with local races and you can, you know, slap Lauren Boulder on the back for apparently surviving in Colorado, if you will, but you didn't win the big races in Pennsylvania. You didn't win in the battlegrounds and that's, you know, where the next election will be decided. You know, getting back to that Trump post for a minute, Ben, uh, two things that struck me as interesting here, number one, when he talked about people getting exhausted, that sounded awful like like the complaints coming out of Georgia from the other side who talked about in 2020 that, you know, people, 2018, 2020, people couldn't get water or Food when they're standing in line were turned away. So you, you bring up these just kind of you know you know images of human misery to associate with voting. But then secondly, you know, do the election over? That's kind of January sixth in a nutshell. Just you know, let's let's overturn the outcome. Yeah, we don't like it. We're going back. I mean, again, uh the emperor was
1: shouting, but nobody was following. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe it's a function of playing too much golf in the post presidency. We don't do mulligans in, in elections. <laughs>
1: Well, what will be interesting is you talked about, uh, no, you don't do mulligans. Uh, yeah. And Carrie Lake seems to be the one candidate who is really going to uh, bang the drum post-election on elections being fraudulent or rigged. And we'll see how she does. Again, they had a massive poll watcher army so that right. if there was fraud or irregularity, it's incumbent on them to produce the evidence, which goodness knows they have not yet done.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned Carrie Lake, because again, since we're doing this on Monday, the 11th, um, and the votes are moving against her in Arizona, but there is no resolution to that race. And maybe by the time uh, people are listening to this, Ben, let's just say for the sake of argument, she loses that race. What would be her next move nationally? Could you see her stepping up and being some sort of election denial heroine and trying to create some sort of national organization and try to monetize election denial? Or do you think, Ben, this is just solely the province of Donald Trump?
1: Oh, I think Carrie Lake probably could try something like that. Again, mm-hmm. it is an idea and a, a philosophy uh, of campaigning that lost. Yeah. And so uh, she may be able to monetize it because goodness knows we've seen what the uh, what the power of a good list can do in terms of raising money. Uh, and you know, it, it will also be interesting to see the post-election polls for how many. Uh, people and how many Republicans still believe that elections are fraudulent. But as of now, you know, 30% of the population seems to be in that category. And so that's fertile grounds uh, for a Kerry Lake, very dynamic individual to um to start that sort of uh, an organization.
0: It is. And that's what I'm curious about, Ben. She can obviously start you know, a social media movement if she wants to, and she'll get a zillion followers and she can get all kinds of clicks. But the question is, can she raise money off it? And then if she can raise money off it, can she then weaponize it in future elections? Or again, does it take somebody of Donald Trump's stature to do that? I
1: think, we, I think we've seen that you can raise money off of it. Yes. Uh, it is not so clear that you can actually create a movement that goes in. You know, after all, Look at the efforts to propound election denial as a winning campaign philosophy from many of Donald Trump's uh, biggest boosters, but that's all failed. And so whether you're Steve Bannon or Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, or Patrick Byrne from Overstock, you spent millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, trying to get people to believe that elections are rigged and fraudulent. And that return on investment uh, number is down about where um, where
0: crypto. Is OK, Professor Ginsburg, we're now going to turn you into Judge Ginsburg for a moment. I want to go back to Arizona yet again. Uh, ben, on Election Day, an Arizona court ruled against a Republican backed lawsuit to keep polls open and provisional ballots in Maricopa County. Uh, I'm sure you've studied the ruling and are familiar with the lawsuit. What was the judge's reasoning here? What was his rationale?
1: The judge's reasoning was that while there were problems with the printers, mm-hmm. in fact uh, the Republicans could produce no voters whose vote actually would not be counted because of so no them. harm. So no harm. There were no voters who would have been disenfranchised by the problem. So no reason to keep the um, the polls open. That was an interesting um, suit for Republicans can bring because generally. Uh, we find that Democrats uh, are the ones who try and keep polls open more because they look at their turnout figures during the day and are disappointed in. Yes. So when I saw the Republicans were filing that suit, that was a big warning sign for Kerry Lakes and Mark Finchin's chances to win. Uh, because it meant the Republicans were not satisfied with their turnout.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, somebody else who had a bad Tuesday night was Mitch McConnell, the uh, Republican minority leader who now continues to be Republican minority leader for two more years in the Senate because the Senate is going to be either 51-49 Democratic or 50-50 uh, with Kamala Harris breaking the ties So Democrats maintain power. Uh Here's why McConnell had a bad night, because obviously Republicans in states where they probably should have won, lost. But secondly, Ben, I'm looking forward to 2024 and uh, the next uh, round of Senate elections. These are the class one senators, Ben. And on paper, things could not line up better for Mitch McConnell. There are 33 seats that are up for grabs in 2024. Ben, 23 of those are held by Democrats. Only 10 are held by Republicans. Uh, If you're looking for Democratic pickups, you're looking at states like Florida, In Texas, we saw on election night that Florida is probably off limits for Democrats for the immediate future. Texas also very difficult to flip. Um, There are eight undecided incumbents right now, Ben. So some of them may be dropping out if they don't like the way 2024 lines up. Um, Things are very fertile for Mitch McConnell. But and there's a huge but here, Ben. The but here is who Republicans end up producing in their primaries. Um. Montana, for example, John Tester is up in 2024, the Democratic senator. There'll be a Republican primary. This is a state that was plus 16 Trump in 2020, Ben. West Virginia, if Joe Manchin runs for another six years, that was a plus 39 state for Trump. Ben, I would argue these are very fertile states for election deniers to run in. What is Mitch McConnell going to do?
1: I think he's going to adapt a very different policy. And he's going to insist that the National Republican Senatorial Committee adapt the same policy of playing in primary. Bill, this is like a repeat of 2010 where Republicans were definitely hurt by the candidates who got nominated in their primary. And in 2014, uh, both the Republican Senatorial Committee and the outside super PACs weighed in on primary races. And I think you can definitely expect that for 2024, you will see active Republican Uh, engagement in the, uh, in the Republican primary.
0: Yeah, I was reading a story, Ben, yesterday uh, of the money that uh, McCollum and his uh, leadership pack uh, threw into races around the country in the general election. It's just staggering. Ben, he invested over $30 million in the state of Ohio, a plus eight Trump state to get J.D. Vance over the finish line. Other states, he was throwing $20 million here, $30 million there, trying to prop up these candidates. He managed to, to lose. I think, Ben, he has to revisit his 2014 strategy where he went around to states and got very active in the primaries and picked winners and losers. he didn't do this time in 2022. I, only the leader can explain why he decided not to. And maybe he just didn't want to go mano a mano with Trump. Uh, maybe he just saw the climate and thought, you know, better to save my money for the general election. But I think you're right. He has to get busy in the business of outcomes.
1: Yeah. And if you want to delve into some of the reasons um, why he didn't get in more, mm-hmm. you have to look to the National Republican Senatorial Committee, who was chaired by Rick Scott. Right. Who had very different attitude about weighing into primaries and standing up to, to Donald Trump. So I think in the post-election circular firing squad that is taking place, uh, in the Republican party, that, that conversation is definitely going to be part of it.
0: Also Scott and McConnell notoriously are not on the same page. Uh, McConnell had fits when Scott came out with his Republican agenda. Um, uh, Scott has hinted openly that he would uh, more than welcome McConnell being kicked out as leadership. It seems to me, Ben, if Republicans want to do this in a neat and orderly fashion, they've got to get their leader and their chair of the NRSC on the same page.
1: Yes, that's really important. And so um, the person who takes over the senatorial committee for this next cycle, uh, I think you can, you can bet that McConnell's number one priority is going to be getting reelected leader. But I suspect he'll weigh into that uh, behind the closed doors of the Senate chamber, race for um, who's head of the NRSC.
0: and that is—is is that just a simple caucus vote? It is a simple caucus vote. So the leader could kind of say, "This is my guy," and let's let's march or die with him.
1: Yeah, of course. We're we're reading lots of stories, and it's a little bit unclear how true they all are about a number of senators at least wanting to postpone the leadership elections uh, from this week. And uh, put it off a little bit more. I think Senator McConnell, uh, at least until this point, has been pretty adamant about holding the leadership elections on time, which, of course, stops any insurgency against them from taking root.
0: Okay, Ben, um, let's talk a bit about the concept of a swift and resolute vote. And I'm going to give you a choice here. You can talk about what happened in the state of Nevada, or you can talk about what happened in your adopted state of California. I'm not only have I made you a major professor, I'm not going to insult you by making you a Californian, but uh, these are two states I think Ben that are kind of poster children for what frustrates people with the voting process in two regards. First of all, Ben, we're a speed society. We, you know, we're talking on Zoom right now. Uh we do, you know, messages, things get resolved fast. People don't like to wait for outcomes. And yet the way the election system is designed in America right now, not everything is built on speed. Some states take their time, and I'll explain a bit about California if you'd like. But here you have Nevada and California, which we're still choosing, uh, we're still counting votes. Nevada has settled its two big high-profile races, the governor's race and the Senate race, which has decided the Senate. But meanwhile, here in California, Ben, we're going to keep counting ballots. Let's see, today is November the 11th. We're going to keep counting ballots into December and this is a problem in this election because guess what? How California votes may decide how the House is swung. And so we could be in something of suspended animation in Washington for the next several weeks as California takes its sweet time counting votes. So let's talk a bit about the delay here.
1: Yeah, it's like one of the emerging problems in election administration. So uh, th- this really goes to a couple of different concepts in the law and provisions that go into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are the process itself hinges on being able to process absentee ballots well before Election Day, to be able to count the ballots on Election Day. Right. And then as well about the deadlines for receipt of absentee ballots and whether that should be on Election Day or at some point later at the ballots are postmarked on Election Day. And different states, of course, have different programs. Uh, there are some states, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, who delay the processing of their absentee ballots. In other words, they don't want it done until Election Day. And I should have said Michigan instead of Wisconsin. But -hmm. they don't don't want their ballots um, processed uh, until Election Day so that no vote gets out prematurely. That can really slow down the process. Um, And then there are other states that believe it's important to have a deadline after Election Day for the receipt of it. And see ballot right. California, you've got sort of some other special problems on top of it. but that is uh, sort of an effort to count every vote. Uh, the problem is there are always deadlines and some people are going to make deadlines and not uh, make deadlines. As a matter of policy, I think a state can uh, require that all ballots come in on election day so that they can be tabulated on election day to get the results out if you they're afraid that's denying people opportunities to vote. You can extend early voting. Now, uh, Arizona faced a special problem because they got something like 290,000 uh, ballots delivered to them on election day, all within the law. But that made it really hard to process their ballots quickly. And Arizona, in part to, in response to the the fraud Uh, situation, uh, does require a really rigorous check of signature on absentee ballots to be sure that's the person. Now, there are other states that use systems where you take the last four digits of a social security uh, number or driver's license and use that instead, which um, takes away the arduous task of comparing signatures. Because I don't know if your handwriting is like mine, Bill, but I'm not sure I
0: sign anything exactly the same way twice. Exactly. Also, it's human nature, Ben. Ben Ginsburg has to sit down and read 5000 signatures. You're going to get slap happy very fast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are better systems used by other states. In other words, there is some best practices for to be done and how to authenticate absentee ballots.
0: Well, the state that people tend to gravitate to, Ben, is Florida, which is a state that maybe at yep. one time caused you to wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweat because you lived through the 2000 recount there. But the narrative and telling me this is true or not is 22 years after the Florida recount. Um, Florida has its act together.
1: Yeah, Florida really does. They are a model. Uh, they have lots of absentee votes there. It's, a, it's an older population. Uh, people take advantage of it. They process their ballots early. They count them. Along with the other ballots on election night, they get their results done in obviously one of the the country's biggest states without any hint of problems or fraud or abuse. So um, that's particularly helpful. We should we should mention one other Donald Trump theme that had an impact on this, which is he number one did not like absentee and mail ballots and told people to vote on election day. Right. But more than that, he told people in states like Arizona uh, and Nevada to not give their uh, ballots to election officials until election day. Right. Uh, Part of a a strategy that also didn't work. But um, that that contributed to the delay in getting Arizona ballots.
0: while we're talking about states at work, Ben, could you explain a little bit about what Georgia did uh, from 2020 to 2022? I believe Brian Kemp, the governor, reelected there. Uh, election integrity was actually part of his re-election message.
1: Yes, and of course, Georgia was the scene of much um, of much uh, turmoil over the passage of an election law that put in what Governor Kemp and Brad Raffensperger uh, thought were needed protections. Uh, of course. Georgia was the scene of where Joe Biden said this new law is like uh, Jim Crow 2.0. Just for the record, um, 2022 turnout in Georgia was 52.7 percent, a little bit off from 2020 and a little bit, but just a little bit off from 2018. By the way, Bill, the voter turnout in very blue New York, 45.9 percent, Delaware 46.4%, 46.4%, Massachusetts, 49.3%. There are blue states that had worse voter turnout than Georgia. And if you want to look at Washington state, which is all-male ballots that had uh, very competitive races for, uh, for governor and uh, other offices or senator uh, as well, uh, and is an all-male state, Uh, That was 52.9%, just 0.2% higher than Georgia. So that for all the protections that got put in Georgia law, it did not seem to have a significant impact on voter turnout.
0: Speaking of turnout, Ben, what's your hunch is what's going to happen in Georgia in uh, early December when uh, Warner and Walker have their Senate runoff? There are two schools of thought here. One is there's so much money in the political system that money will find an open race and will flood in. The second school of thought, Ben, is once they called the Senate race in Nevada and the Senate went Democratic, it kind of, you know, sort of poked a hole in the balloon and it took the air out of that race.
1: Yeah, not nearly quite so hyped as, um, as it would have been if control of the Senate. Was involved in that, so there's going to be a little bit of a of a natural letdown. Um, Herschel Walker has kind of a problem because Brian Kemp is not on the ticket, and Brian Kemp really was a uh, got reelected overwhelmingly and had quite the turnout operation. Uh, I think there are uh, Republicans who probably did not vote for Walker uh, on November eighth. But if the Senate was hanging in the balance, would have voted for Walker. And so without the Senate hanging in the balance, I'm not sure the imperative is quite there. Yeah. And certainly, R- Raphael Wernick's going to have a little bit of a turnout problem because Stacey Abrams, although she fell really short uh, for governor of Georgia, did have a turnout operation in her core communities that was pretty impressive.
0: And as I mentioned earlier, she didn't cry foul as she did in 2018, so good for her. She did not. Yep. Okay. Uh, Ben, let's uh, delve into California for a couple of minutes since I'm a Californian. I I can't uh, walk away from this. Uh, To the adage of the good, the bad, and the ugly in American elections, I think California, Ben, kind of embodies the bad and the ugly in this regard. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with California, here's how California does elections right now. In 2020, uh, the state changed its uh, rules for voting. It uh, mailed every registered voter a ballot. And this made sense, Ben, because there was a public health crisis going on and there were legitimate questions about people being able to vote. In person with COVID and so every Californian got a ballot. In 2021, the legislature and the governor made that permanent so every Californian who's registered to vote Ben gets a ballot in the mail, about 30 days before the election. Now in terms of an official canvas in California Ben that's not until a month after the election so was a 30 day window to count votes. Voters in California, Ben, those who tally the votes, they don't work around the clock. They have to work at least six hours a day, Ben, but they get holidays off and they get weekends off. So they just had a three day weekend after the election. So that's three potential days to count votes. Uh, let me go further on here. <clears throat> California mailed in ballots require signature verification. So there we are, the time consuming process of Ben and Bill and others having to look at every mailed in ballot and making sure the signature matches. California allow same-day voter registration, Ben, which likewise requires verifying. Hand counts required of ballots cast in 1% of precincts. Then in the Secretary of State's language, and you're going to like this, Ben, there's, quote, the reconciliation of the number of ballots counted, spoiled, canceled, or invalidated due to identifying marks or overvotes with the number of votes counted, including vote by mail and provisional ballots. In other words, we're checking and we're checking and we're checking. So I need the two things going on here in California, Ben. One, is a behavioral problem in that people given ballots 30 days before the election, it's not like they vote 30 days before, even though ironically in California, most statewide races are a done deal. Uh, You know, if you're going to vote Democratic or Republican, there are just really no dramatic statewide races. Our colleague Lon Hee Chen here at the Hoover Institution is a good example. He ran the most competitive race for a Republican. He ran for state controller, he got about 45.5% of the vote uh 4 points ahead of the rest of the republican slate so they all were losers but here's the problem ben if you're in los angeles county right now counting votes uh good luck there's a very contentious mayor's race going on the last i checked ben 985,000 ballots were counted a million ballots a million ballots were still sitting out there remaining to be counted and it's a crapshoot. Nate Cohen at the New York Times looks at these. He kind of studies trends and tries to project races based on how the vote is trending. But you don't know who those million ballots are. They could, in the case of Los Angeles, there could be a lot of Rick Caruso supporters out there. He's one of two Democrats running for the office. They could be Karen Bass supporters. So we have to sit there and wait patiently for a million ballots to be counted. Um, But the second problem here, Ben, is that um, people just hold on to it to the last minute, and they dump them in either on the day of the vote or, as you mentioned earlier, even Worse, they mail them on the day of the election, <laughs> and so they can arrive up to they can arrive up to seven days after the election and still be voted. This is not how the system should work. But here's what I'm kind of puzzling with Ben that you can help me with: How exactly do we fix this in California? You don't. You can say, okay, fine. You have a mail-in ballot, so Ben and Bill can vote early. But Ben and Bill shouldn't necessarily be voting so early in case something happens down the stretch. There's a very decisive or very you know curious debate such as what happened in pennsylvania with fetterman and oz maybe you want to base your vote on that what if the sky falls in on the ginsburg campaign in the last week we find out that ben Ginsburg is the most horrible man who ever lived but you've already cast your ballot again you don't get a mulligan. against so you don't get it back so that's one issue how early should we be allowed to vote but then secondly ben what do you do with that mail-in ballot uh, should you be allowed to mail it in on the day of the election or should there be a window before the day of the election for mailing it in Dropping it off, and how many days before? So, California has to change its practices, I think, Ben, in some way, because the problem here, and this uh, gets back to Trump, is trust in the system. You're sitting here in California and you're watching the numbers dance on votes, and the numbers in California, Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one, Ben. The numbers invariably dance in the Democrats' favor. So, If you're prone to conspiracy theories, if you believe elections are stolen, you watch these numbers move and it just reinforces the message from deniers that, you know, votes are only selectively counted. The fix is in the election is stolen. It does not really reinforce the public's trust in elections.
1: No, it's a real end of of rant. (laughs) Well, it's a good rant and it's it's a real problem. You've got some other things that you do in California that contribute to the Amount of time it takes to review a ballot. Right, you have a lot of ballot issue referendum questions. Integral part of the way Californians sort of govern themselves. They slow down the process of a voting and b tabulating the vote. Um, you have an awful lot of precincts, especially in Los Angeles County. Uh, you could reduce the number of precincts and uh, and have vote centers. Conveniently located for people, that would help um, with the process as well. And I think you really um, put your finger on the biggest problem, which is letting ballots come in up to a week after election day. Um, And that's just always going to slow down uh, the time when results are known. Uh, And and so that's a—it's a combination, you know. New York State, the other big blue democratic state in the country has much the same system and difficulty in getting its results done on time. So there are there are better practices that states can can interject kind of in this experiment with democracy where I think the reason for keeping the deadlines open, uh, the proponents believe it allows more people to vote. Uh, you know, Again, extend early voting so there are just as many days, but have a firm deadline so that uh, so that things are not so uncertain.
0: So, one thing which hasn't been talked much about uh, in California, Ben, but I'd like to get your thoughts on we're a very electronic society. We're doing this conversation on a Zoom call right now. Uh, I shop online. I don't know if you do your banking online. Why don't we vote online?
1: There is uh, a, a firm and vociferous group of cybersecurity experts Mm -hmm. who say that is absolutely the most irresponsible thing that could possibly be done uh, with the current technology. (laughs) And so you you, uh, will never get sign off Mm -hmm. from those who say the election will be hacked until the technology is improved. Now, that is also a market that is ripe for disruption, disruption. And so I think there are uh, enterprises out there looking at a voting machine that can pass the, um, the test of security. But for now, there is such a group of, of cybersecurity experts who turn a big thumbs down on that idea that it's not, uh, it's not an immediate solution.
0: Speaking of cybersecurity, Ben, I haven't heard the word Russia uh, in the past week. <laughs>
1: no, uh, there don't appear to have been uh, as many uh, incursions to, to interrupt our our elections as we've had in the past, or our folks managed to prevent them so successfully that it's uh, it's not become an issue or a warning. Now, the 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 incidents of uh, breaches tend to come out after the election rather than before. So I think it is probably a story that appears to have a happy ending right now, but stay tuned.
0: It may also be a simple Ben that foreign powers maybe take more pleasure out of meddling in, in presidential elections than they do congressional elections.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. It is certainly easier to to foment dissent in a presidential election where everyone is looking at the same basic uh, election, as opposed to all the individual state and local contexts been off here.
0: Okay, so let's do. Let's take that now, Ben, into a talk about moving forward with election integrity and improving the system. Uh, <clears throat> here in California, it's not going to change, and why? It benefits one party, and one party controls the system. And I don't say that as a partisan whiner. It's if I, if the shoe were on the other foot, Republicans ran everything in California, and the system worked to their benefit, they wouldn't change anything either. So. We could sit here and complain about California maybe having to do things better, but until such a time, frankly, Ben, is a government run by Democrats, sees Republicans prevailing in the system, things won't change. Nationally, in terms of election reform, if the Senate is Democratic and the House, well, if it is Republican, we'll we'll find out. I think the last I looked at Nate Cohn's numbers, uh, I think he targets uh, the Republicans getting somewhere from 219 to 221, I think. Um, let's assume now it's a split Congress, Ben. What does that tell me? Election reform is dead on arrival in Congress, so we can't talk about necessarily what's feasible in Congress, Ben. But let's do talk about what should be done, both with lessons from this um, uh, past, past well, the past week, but also with twenty twenty four coming up. So now I'm going to turn you from Professor Ginsburg into Lord King Ginsburg, with your scepter and your orb, and you can you can change the system. Tell me what you do, and let me begin with this, Ben. Should we have a nationalized standard for elections? Uh, well
1: we should not have a nationalized standard. I was co-chair a few years ago on a presidential commission on election administration in which um, we talked to many, many, many election administrators. It's where I gained my admiration for them and learned a lot. And the number one lesson they said is, one size does not fit all. That there are just differences between states and even within states that you have to take into account,
0: so you can't have a, um, a cookie cutter system. Okay, so so tell me then why you can't pick up Florida and drop Florida into Arizona? Well, there are differences
1: between them and between the expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arizona actually has a much heavier uh, absentee ballot vote by male population than even Florida, mm-hmm. and so you need to to do things differently with uh, when people can vote. And uh, and vote centers, and part of it is just changing a culture that's become ingrained in uh, in a state. And Florida, after the trauma of uh, two thousand, was able to push forward these changes. In Arizona, which, as as the election results show, is still a pretty evenly divided state, that's mm-hmm. much more that's much more difficult to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at DeSantis's numbers, Ben, I think he got about 58, 59 percent of the vote. But then you look at the voter registration numbers. And this is not California, New York, where it's a two to one uh, registration advantage for one party. Republicans are now the majority in Florida, the largest plurality, I should say. But it's not by a very large margin. No, uh, but
1: those voter registration numbers have always been a little bit of a, or at least recently, have become sort of a not real accurate um, predictor. Okay. Um, but look, you you asked me to to wave my magic wand over. Yeah, so,
0: so give me give me some suggestions yeah. for how to improve the system because there are two things we have to do here. One is what in terms of how we can better do elections. But then the second one, which we'll get to is disinformation. So first, how do we improve the system? To improve the system, I think you do have all ballots in by election day, I and mean, again, extend
1: early voting if you need to, but get results out sooner, so there's not the the post election churn. I think you do need to, to make it, to give people different options for voting. In other words, I think the, um, the notion that vote by mail is inherently corrupt somehow or unreliable uh, is wrong until proven otherwise, and there's certainly no evidence of it. And so uh, allowing people opportunities to vote with the proper safeguards over them is really important. I get really worried about the 30% figure who deny the reliability of elections. I don't know how you do a, a democracy with that. And so I think there are some appearance of reliability standards that should go into all states' elections um, to be able to, to give voters uh, the, the strong indication that elections are active. Arizona actually has among the best set of laws, I think, for that appearance of reliability. So uh, Doug Ducey, the governor at the time, was able to stand up to Donald Trump in 2020. We'll see uh, what happens if Kerry Lake raises objections to it. Uh, But Arizona withstood the, or Maricopa County, withstood the Cyber Ninja audit really didn't find anything amiss. And we'll see if Carrie Lake can come up with anything, but I'm going to bet not. And if she doesn't, then the provisions of Arizona law, things like voter identification and amount of time to vote, and signature verification, uh, absentee ballot verification, become models for the rest of the country.
0: Let me throw an idea at you, Ben, and this would be a trade-off. The trade-off is that number one, you go back and reform the system and you make it a little more difficult to vote by mail uh, in this regard. You and I are of a generation where if you voted absentee, was really a lifestyle choice. Ben or Bill were going to be out of the country at the time of the election, so we voted absentee. People would show up and they vote on election day, which you and I can argue is probably good for democracy in terms of being an active participant and being with your fellow citizens. So what about a a trade-off, Ben, where you, first of all, make it a little more difficult for people to vote by mail, but then secondly, you make election day a holiday?
1: Um, Well, I
0: think election day as a holiday is a pretty
1: good idea. Uh, I don't have objections to vote by mail as long as there are sufficient safeguards on who the voters are. Yeah. So, again, I you know, I think a lot of voting in this country should be uh, things that are convenient for voters. Mm-hmm. And vote by mail is one of those things. And, you know, the good side of vote by mail bill is that it has been shown to reduce waiting times in polling places, no yes. long line. And so that that I think is a plus. So I'm not so, um, I think you need to have good safeguards in vote by mail. I think Arizona, if it goes through, another recount will be shown to, to have those. Um, and Florida certainly does. And those should be models for the country on the way they do vote by mail.
0: Okay, what about maybe changing the window then for when you can mail in your mail-in ballot? Uh, you know, taking away the idea that you just can't drop it in the mail on the day of the election, maybe you, you have to drop it in the mail within 24 hours of election day or something like that.
1: Yeah, or have enough places where you can actually drop it off. You have yes. enough both centers uh, in jurisdictions, then it's easy for people to drop them off on election day.
0: Of course, now we're here gonna get another can of worms, Ben, because the election denier is gonna say, well, wait a second, if Ben Ginsburg is setting up a system where there are thousands of drop-off locales in California, they're all gonna get stolen and dumped somewhere off the highway. So which actually which actually happened, which actually happened to Santa Clara County here. It was like 13 ballots, I think, but yet somebody found 13 ballots randomly dumped somewhere. So this is going to get to the second problem here, though, Ben, which is uh disinformation and how you're gonna quell disinformation in this age.
1: Uh truly a problem. I think
0: that's more a societal solution
1: to it. Mm-hmm. Uh I think you you need to have truth tellers out there. It has proven one of the most difficult and persistent problems that we face. Although, Bill, it's kind of a ray of sunshine that the election deniers did so poorly on election night, right? because a lot of the disinformation um, would have led to their victory if it had been believed by the majority of voters, and it wasn't.
0: Okay, uh, there's one other avenue here, Ben, and that is uh, the people who run elections in this country need to have conversations with the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Mr. Musk, uh, assuming he's going to hold on to Twitter uh, in the future, and say, look it, you got to start, it's got to stop posting so much crap on your site. It just confuses and angers people. You know, go on the internet right now, Ben, and Google Maricopa and fraud. <laughs> you, you'll be shocked by the stuff that shows up there. <laughs> yes, yes, you, yes,
1: we all are when we when we look at it. I think you're right. I mean, that's a much broader problem.
0: Yeah, it's not political. stuff. Right. Um, Although that we certainly think about at this time. But then, Ben, you're into another legal problem, which is okay. I'm going to go onto Twitter and stop people from posting rumors about stuff going on in Maricopa County. Now we're mucking around in the realm of free speech.
1: Yeah, we are. And there are I mean, that's why this is not going to have any quick solution. But uh, they are conversations that need to uh, need to really
0: get started. Okay, Uh, so we started this podcast with you giving um, 2022 an A. Uh, How optimistic are you that 2024, which will be higher stakes because of the presidency, Ben, it too will come in with an A?
1: I think there were a lot of lessons to be learned uh, from 2022, what election administrators did correctly, uh, that should be helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I am optimistic about 2024. 2022 showed the quality of the people we have running our elections. and election denialism failing at the ballot box in 2022. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a discussion about the real substantive issues uh, like the economy and uh, foreign policy and social issues, which is what we ought to be talking about.
0: Hopefully, our producer Florent can now dub in the music from The Impossible Dream. <laughs> 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 okay, Ben, finally, what uh, what are you doing at Hoover after the election now? What, what do you got in the way of uh, democracy projects?
1: Well, we have a number of conferences involving uh, election officials to try and get the best practices that uh, should be brought out on a more national basis. We'll be continuing to study the institution of voting mm-hmm. and look at some of the uh, underlying issues that make it make it a contentious area, try and get the best minds together to come up with uh, improvements Uh, on that and really to help preserve the
0: institution of voting in America. Mm -hmm. And I hope more podcasts. I hope you do more podcasts. I thought your Saints, Sinners, and Salvador podcast were excellent. And dare I say, they served a very, very important need to the public. Well, thank you. Okay. You've been listening to St. Sinner's Bulls, a Hoover Institution podcast exploring America's election system and the many challenges facing our democratic process in these current hyperpartisan environment. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. <laughs> If you want to learn more about Ben Ginsberg, you'll find his bio at the Hoover Institution's website, which is hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Ben Ginsberg and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. One final note, Ben and I will be back one more time before Thanksgiving. We're doing a video cast, a primer on how to talk politics during the holiday season, so you don't want to miss that. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you have a safe and rewarding Thanksgiving. Till we meet again, take care.